There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried, and it was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole, and he was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. All right, everybody. Good to see you this morning. Go ahead and grab your Bibles. Turn to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to return to chapter 26. We're going to be looking at Jesus' betrayal and arrest today. Uh, If you are just joining us, we are in a series for Easter looking at um, what the Bible calls the man of sorrows. That title is taken from uh, the prophet Isaiah's depiction of a suffering servant. In fact, Isaiah gives us four different pictures of a man that would suffer. And just listen to some of the words that Isaiah uses well, particularly in the 53rd chapter of his, uh, of his prophecy regarding this suffering servant. He says, it will be a man who will be despised, rejected. We would esteem him not. He'd be stricken, smitten, afflicted, wounded for our transgressions, bruised, scourged, oppressed, slaughtered, imprisoned, judged. And ultimately, Isaiah says he's going to be cut off, which is the Bible's words for saying he's going to be killed. Now, if you know your Bible, you know you that, that was a prophecy given 700 years before Jesus um, condescended to earth. And in the New Testament, we find out that this suffering servant is none other than Jesus himself. And specifically what Isaiah is saying in all of these words in regards to this man of sorrows is, is talking about Jesus' suffering that he endures as he's getting ready to go to the cross. And so, so today we're focusing on Jesus' sufferings through his betrayal and his arrest. And we're looking at verses 47 through 56 in Matthew chapter 26. And so I'm going to ask you to read along with me. If you don't have a Bible, there's one down the center column of seats. You're welcome to grab that and, uh, and read along with me. So let's read together. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish from the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so at that Jesus hour? I'm sorry. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? 
Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the day. Thank you for your word. I pray that it would uh, be nourishment to our souls. God, that you would challenge us. God, that we would see a, a picture of uh of not just sorrow and suffering, but of the hope that only can come from the gospel. And, and, uh, and, and God, for those here who have yet to surrender to, uh, to the man that brings his hope, I pray that it would be a word of, uh, of challenge to their hearts, but also uh, potential liberation for the chains that they currently live in. God, uh, uh, bless us with the, the hearing and the preaching of your word today. And I pray that in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. I don't know about you, but one of the more hurtful things that you can experience in life is betrayal, especially if that betrayal comes at the, at the hands of a friend, someone that's close to you. There's similarly no more ugly or repulsive of a word as traitor. And that word is personified in the, one of the main characters in our text today, and his name is, is Judas. He's one of the disciples, Matthew calls him. He's one that's close to Jesus, and we'll see some of his heinous acts uh, in, uh, on display here in, in our text as Jesus is, is nearing the cross. We're going to focus, uh, really, I mean, chapter 26 has a lot in it, and particularly this, this section of it as, as Jesus suffers even more through betrayal and arrest has a lot. And so we're going to sort of focus our attention on three things today. And the first of those things is, is how Jesus suffered through betrayal. So let me set the scene. It's Friday morning. It's probably around midnight. The disciples are all in the Garden of Gethsemane. And if you're one of the disciples, then it's been an eventful week as as you've been following along with Jesus. They came to Bethany at the beginning of the week. And Bethany is significant only because it's adjacent to Jerusalem. It's just a village, small village, just east of Jerusalem. And there were uh, Jews of various sorts and God-fearing people who were anticipating, they were waiting for Jesus of Nazareth, the rabbi, the prophet, this guy that went around doing all these miracles to come. And they could sense, I mean, it was palpable, the anticipation that they had that he was coming because they thought that this is the moment. This is the moment prophesied in Zechariah 9.9 that he would come and he would go into Jerusalem and become their king and what they're thinking is that this Jesus, this supposed king, would amass an army around him. And he, because he's the prophesied king that's going to come, is going to, uh, with that army, overthrow the Romans. And the, the, the Israelites, as a nation, would return to their former glory. Little did they know that Jesus was going to do that. In fact, he comes in on that Sunday riding on a donkey. And what do they do? They take their coats off and they lay them on the ground and they take palm branches and they wave them as they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the, 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 the God of, uh, of David. And Jesus comes in and nothing happens. Perhaps the, one of the 
the high points of that week is, is as Jesus goes into the temple and he overturns the, 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 the tables of the money changers. And then later on, he goes in the temple and he talks the, the, the great discourse of Olivet as he uh, says that, hey, all this is going to be overthrown. He, he announces the, the destruction of, of Rome and Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And then they come to Thursday, the day when he goes to, they, they borrow an upper room, and, and with the disciples, he um, experiences the, the last Passover, at least Jesus' last Passover. And during that Passover, he gets down on his knees, and he takes his clothes off and wraps a towel around his waist, and he washes their feet. And he talks to them about what humble servant leadership would look like. And he talks to them about what condescending love looks like through his demonstrable act. More importantly, he, he tells them that this, this event, this feast of unleavened bread, this, this celebration of Passover where they looked, uh, where they remembered the lamb that was slain and the blood that was, that was put over the doorposts uh, by their ancestors to to escape the curse uh, on on the land of Egypt, uh, of the importance of that, he he says, you know what, I'm going to super I'm going to uh, supersede that with with my own body and blood. And he took bread and wine. He said, this this bread and wine is my body and my blood, which will be broken and poured out for you. And all Christians for all time should remember me through the signs and symbols of this act. And it was likely that Thursday. Sometimes toward the end of that meal, that as Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper, that Satan entered Judas. And upon that, Jesus dismissed Judas as the one that would betray him. And so Judas leaves the scene. He leaves the upper room. He leaves the disciples. He leaves Jesus. He walks through the city and he finds the religious leaders upon whom he sells himself to for 30 pieces of silver. And at that same time, the disciples finished the liturgy of the, the Lord's Supper of the Passover, and they head out after singing a song to Mount, the Mount of Olives. And they're in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus there is in agony as he's praying because he's anticipating this great moment where he would be betrayed. And that's where we enter as we look at our text. Verse 47 says, while Jesus was still speaking, and the obvious question is, I mean, what is what is he saying? And fortunately, Matthew tells us in the, the few verses prior to that, Jesus has just prayed three different times. And the, the, the disciples are sleeping intermittently between that sleeping, not because they're lazy, not because they don't they just, you know, that, that life is overcome. They're sleeping because they're sorrowful. Their closest friend, their master, their rabbi has told them that he's going to die and perhaps not as sorrowful as Jesus, but they are feeling the effects of what's about to happen. And so he's waking them and telling them that his betrayers are at hand. And so as he tells them to, to wake up one more time, Jesus looks and he can see it through the trees. He can see it through the olive grove. He sees lanterns. He sees lights. He sees a horde of people coming and they've got weapons. He sees this huge crowd. In fact, Matthew goes on to write, Judas came, one of the 12, and with him a great crowd was with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Matthew is highlighting 
for us who actually is the one that's behind the this this scene, this fact that some these people are coming to both betray and arrest Jesus. And and he points out for us, yes, it was Judas. Judas was leading them. But actually, there's there's more behind it than that. Judas is being used. Jesus is a scapegoat. It was actually the Jewish leaders who are behind this. And they even got the, the support of Caesar by sending out a Roman cohort. John's gospel asks this in John 18. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some offers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Interestingly, John uses this word band. They, they've, they've got a band of soldiers. This is not uh, a bunch of musicians who are coming and collectively playing music as they're marching by. A band of soldiers is a cohort of a band of soldiers is a cohort of Roman soldiers. It's, it's like 600 soldiers armed to the to the to the hill. It's like a, a light infantry, infantry battalion in one of in, in, in our in our army today. And so it, here's the scene. Here comes this crowd of people. To the, the Mount of Olives, specifically the Garden of Gethsemane, there's chief priests, the, the writers tell us there's there's elders, there's scribes. There's Pharisees. There's 600 Roman soldiers. John's gospel goes on to tell us that they had lanterns and torches and weapons. And so this wasn't just a crowd. This is a mob. And they're ready to take this supposed conspirator, this this guy named Jesus. They're going to arrest him. They're going to beat him. And at the instigation of the religious leaders, they're going to kill him. I find it interesting that one of the things that the gospel writers focus on in in this scene is the irony of the moment. They're contrasting how how harmlessly, how peaceably, how non-aggressively Jesus has acted out of the the three or three plus years of his ministry as he was around all these different types of people. And, And now this mob comes in the middle of the night armed with like riot police type weapons, and they're intending to, to use bully clubs and daggers and their swords to take down this Jesus, this Jesus who was the ultimate peacemaker among them. But I think as ugly as this crowd probably was, it, it's one thing that sticks out in this scene here, and it's Judas. Judas and his act of betrayal is much uglier than anything that this, the others in this crowd can do. Verse 48 Now, the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi. And he kissed him. He used to kiss. Think of what I mean, what do you think of when you think of kiss? This will go down perhaps as not as just one of the ugliest, most heinous acts that has ever been committed, but probably the ugliest act of betrayal ever in human history. The hypocrisy of what happens here is, uh, is beyond description. I mean, the, simp- the, the, the signal to identify Jesus seemed pretty simple. In fact, it probably had to be that way. There was no other way they were going to be able to recognize who Jesus was. It was in the middle of the night. It was dark. They didn't know who Jesus was. And so Judas had to arrange this way that he was going to identify him. But if you you think about it, what an 
um, just unlikely, unthinkable, unbelievable means that he chose. Oh, by the way, this also indicates to us that there really was no special physical feature about Jesus by which he lived his life. Jesus was a normal human being on the planet, just like everybody else around him. He didn't have a halo on his head that identified him as the son of God. He wasn't glowing like he did on the Mount of Transfiguration. That was just a one time, one moment thing. Isaiah rightly says he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. There was no way to tell who this Jesus was. And so what does Judas do? He tells them, I'm going to kiss him. I'm going to kiss him on the cheek. That's how you're going to know who Jesus is. And this kiss is significant because kissing in this culture at this history of our world was uh, a means of homage. It was, it was, you kissed a person that you respected. It was, it was a, a, a student showing their teacher how much they respected them and how much they loved them. It was the sign of affection. It was, it was duty. It was an inferior's job to kiss his, his boss or his, his master on the back of the hand. A servant would kiss the palm. A slave would kiss the foot. Kissing the hem of a garment expressed great reverence. But when someone kissed you on the cheek, it was a sign of intimacy. It was a sign of affection between good friends. It it meant that you were equals, that you had great affection toward each other. It wasn't just a mark of gratitude. It wasn't just a mark of homage and respect. It was a mark of love. And that's what Jesus allowed Judas to do. That's what Jesus pretended to do. Judas, with this kiss, intensified the ugliness of this moment of treachery. And so we have to ask, what kind of man, what kind of mind would would stoop to do such a thing? But perhaps you in the room today are familiar with, with betrayal of someone turning on you. A husband betrays a wife, an employee gets passed over for promotion by an employer who, in writing, had told him he was going to get promoted. Maybe a friend turns on you and tells everybody uh, a great secret that you have, and they put it on social media of all places. Perhaps uh, a child is promised something by a parent, and the parent very easily just breaks it and, and doesn't think anything about it. Many of us have been on the receiving end of betrayal. But if you're Jesus in this moment, what do you do? How do you handle it? Here is what the wisdom of Proverbs says. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Here's the wisdom of Proverbs. It's it's saying that the hypocrisy of betrayal is overdone. It's it's to the extreme. And I think in Jesus' case, what what, what the, the wisdom of Proverbs is adding here is it's compounded. For Jesus, it was the hatred of the priest. It was the loud screams of the crowd. It was the cowardice of Pilate to give in to religious leaders to allow his soldiers to be out there. It was the brutality of the soldiers, the soldiers who, I mean, had nothing against Jesus. He had done nothing to to deserve the, the punishment, the beating that they're eventually going to give him, the chains that they would tie him up in. And so this Jesus suffers with a quiet heart. And it must have been a hard moment for Jesus to live through that, to anticipate it, to suffer in the way that he suffered and to have it all start off 
with the intimacy of a kiss. All the love he had given Judas. And this is what Jesus gets back. Betrayed by a kiss. Only a a Satan-possessed soul could conceive of such perversion and actually pull it off with such boldness. And and surely this highlights the heinous nature of of Judas and, and what happens when Satan takes over a soul like that. But I think what we have to also admit that this uh, this brings out for us just the, the, the amount of sorrow that Jesus took on as he was walking to the cross. He has borne our griefs and our sorrows. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing I want to point out from our text. It's Peter's misunderstanding. Look at verse 51. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you not think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Peter had pledged to follow Jesus, I mean, to the end. Peter was willing to die with or die for Jesus. And the truth is, we have to admire Peter, like right in this moment. I think we have to admire Peter for who he becomes in all of Scripture. But we do have to smile a little bit about what's going on here, because this is this is the typical Peter that we get to know of, that the gospel writers so clearly talk to us about. And of course, I am telling you that it's it's Peter here that actually is the one that pulled out a sword and cut off Malchus, the high priest's servant's ear, when Matthew actually doesn't say that. So how do I know that? If you turn to Mark's gospel, uh, Mark, scholars tell us, is, is writing from a perspective of Peter. So in a sense, when you're reading Mark's gospel in the Bible, you're reading about Peter's own personal um, biography, you know, uh, the, the way he lived through life with Jesus, the life, uh, death and resurrection of Jesus. And so I'm attributing what's going on here to Peter. And so you got to love Peter because, I mean, think about it. This is this is a pretty bold act. Think about the greatest like like dude, man, character in whatever the you know, I'm I'm thinking of a word I can't use in, in a sermon. All right. So just a bad dude. Right. <laughs> Like I was watching London Has Fallen uh, the, the other night. You think of, they got to play 300? Like, ugh! I mean, that's, that's what Peter is personifying. I mean, he is like living up to that kind of, a, kind of a thing. That's what Peter's doing. But, but what, what we see here before we get to that is the fact that Peter actually doesn't understand what's going on. Peter's misunderstanding Jesus' purpose and his mission in life in this moment. Because uh, way back in Matthew 16 at Caesarea Philippi, uh, Jesus had asked the disciples, you know, who am I? And Peter's the one that got the revelation. You are the Messiah, the Christ, the son of the living God. And then very shortly after that, another scene, Peter is, Jesus is saying, get behind me, Satan. You, you're saving up the things of the Lord, but of the world. Jesus is rebuking Peter because Peter just doesn't get it. He's heard it, 
but the, what he's hearing is not comprehending. He has no idea of why Jesus has come. And so in this very moment, as Peter is taking out his sword and about to cut off the ear of, of, of Malchus, actually, he does it. Peter here again has missed the point. He has no idea of what's happening in this moment. He has no idea of, of Jesus' purpose and his destiny. Peter again is getting in the way physically, almost trying to prevent Jesus from going to the cross and dying the persecution that he's supposed to, to die. But but here's the cool thing about Peter, back to the, the superhero kind of guy. I mean, Peter is a, uh, perhaps a lone man. He might have a sword, but there's, there's like a lot of people there. Like P Peter's just one man willing to die for Jesus. But you got Roman soldiers and chief priests and scribes and you got the temple guards and they got weapons and torches and billy clubs and daggers and swords and Peter doesn't stand a chance against these people. So we have to, I mean, we have to uh, admire Peter for his tenacity and for his, his courage at this moment. And so Jesus, you know, politely interrupts Peter and he says, Peter, hey, what are you doing, man? Don't you know that I could call 12 legions of angels at, at my beckon and call if I wanted to? Legion, 12 legion, one legion of Roman soldiers is 6,000 soldiers. Jesus says he can call up to 12, 72,000 angels there in the, in the snap of Jesus' finger to come protect him if necessary. And here's Jesus' point. I, I think with Peter, as he's scolding him, we know from other gospels, that he actually bends down, picks up this Malchus' ear, puts it back on him and heals him. What a kind of thing to do. Jesus is stressing that it's not because God lacks the power to stop the arrest that he's going to the cross. It's not because Jesus lacks the courage to ask God to intervene and save him from that moment. Actually, he's done that. He did that uh, perhaps in the same hour as he's sweating blood, you know, sweating sweat like blood as he's praying to God the Father that he would take that cup from him. Jesus has already surrendered to, to, to the plan of God. As it would come on, as it would unfold, the, the cross is not some plan B, some plan B kind of idea that God came up with. Jesus is going to the cross because He's chosen to go to the cross. This is something that's been talked about, thought about outside of time, before time, in the council of of the, the Trinity of God, and Jesus is. Um, he's submitting to that. Jesus is not some passive victim. He is the prime actor. And so Jesus goes to the cross because of his desire to fulfill the word of God. Anglican bishop uh, in the 19th century, J.C. Rowell, explains it this way. He says, we see in these words the secret of his voluntary submission to his foes. He came on the purpose to fulfill the types and promises of the Old Testament scriptures and by fulfilling them to provide salvation for the world. He came intentionally to be the true lamb of God, the Passover lamb. He came voluntarily to be the scapegoat on whom the iniquities of the people were to be laid. His heart was set on accomplishing this great work. It could not be done without the hiding of his power for a time. To do it, he became a willing sufferer, the man of sorrows. He was taken, tried, condemned, and crucified entirely of his own free will. I mean, those are those are good words. Those are 
right words. And as we sit here on Palm Sunday, looking forward to preparing our hearts for Easter, where we celebrate not just Jesus' death, but his, his resurrection, we have to know that Jesus understands that he was born to die. And in this moment, he's rebuking the disciples. But his suffering wasn't without aim. I mean, this, and this is, the, this is a good point in this text here. Jesus wasn't giving up his life for himself. He was doing it to save sinners. He was doing it for, for people like us. The Almighty Son of God who allowed men to bind him and take him away and ultimately crucify him is desiring that sinners like you and me would turn from our ways and trust in him and find salvation. And if he was willing to suffer like he did in this moment and like he would throughout the rest of this week, surely he is full and ready to save everyone who calls on his name. And so the question for all of us really is, have you called on his name? Because he has already suffered for you and he extends both his mercy and his grace, but more importantly, the invitation to believe in him and trust in him and appropriate the, the death that he will die in your place for your sin. Here's the last thing that we should see in this text. Not the last thing, but here's the last thing I'll talk about today. It's the sovereignty of God. Look at verse 55. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place. The scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. And so after speaking to the disciples, actually rebuking them, uh, rebuking Peter uh, of sorts, Jesus turns his attention to to the crowd. And he's challenging them, perhaps because, I mean, there's not a man that's there that doesn't know they're, they're wrong. I mean, they're, they're there for the wrong reason. They're there because they're, they're cowards. They've come as this horde. They're in the middle of the night. They're bringing weapons to seize someone who's never carried a weapon in his life. Jesus wasn't a revolutionary as he had been Uh, claimed to be. He had not come to lead a military insurrection. The the Jewish leaders knew that. And and really, all the leaders among them, particularly the Jewish leaders, uh, rightfully know that that, that Jesus, the one they're coming to get the Romans to take and to beat and to ultimately to to kill, uh, has nothing uh, for which they should arrest him and, and ultimately kill him. And so instead of welcoming Jesus as the Son of God, their, their long-awaited, expected Messiah, what do they do? These Jewish religious leaders, they send a group of vigilante soldiers to capture him for the purpose of murdering him. And what we should see in that is, is really just the ultimate display of, of wickedness and, and treachery. There, there's Jew and Gentile alike. They, they represent all of us in this room. All of those kinds of people are there. This is unjust wickedness on display. So these men have no right to be there. They have no reason to arrest Jesus. He's done nothing wrong. There was no crime. This, their actions are completely unfair, inequitable, and perhaps it would be simply right to say that what they're about to do is an unjust and evil act of murder. But look at what Jesus says in verse 56. He says, but all this has taken place 
that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And so Jesus is, is, is giving us perspective here. He's saying, he's saying their actions, all, all of this stuff that's taking place here, it's, it's what the scriptures have already said, and I'm just doing uh, what needs to be done so that they are fulfilled. I mean, think about that. Jesus is saying, my, my friend, my betrayer, Judas, even though this is a, just an awful thing that he's doing, betraying me with a kiss, he's here because God needs him to be here so that I can fulfill the thing that God has called me to do. All my captors, the temple guards, the servants, uh, the servants of the chief priests, the scribes, the elders of the people, all of these Roman soldiers who, whom Pilate has allowed to come and, and, and serve for, for these heinous purposes, you're doing exactly what has been predicted in Scripture. You are, you are helping me fulfill Scripture because I've come into the world in order that I might lay my life down, just as the prophets have foretold. You are literally instruments in the hand of a redeeming God. I'm the redeemer. I'm going to redeem. You're doing those things that help me to do what I'm called to do. I'm not being taken today against my own free will, Jesus would say. I'm being taken today in accordance with the will of God, which is what I've freely embraced. And I think as we try to make sense of of our text today, pay close attention to the response that Jesus is giving all these people, particularly the response that he gives to Judas. Back up to verse 50. I skipped this one on purpose. I think this is a pivotal verse in our text because of what Jesus says. And what does he say? He says, friend, do what you came to do. Note that Jesus calls him friend. Uh, that's a, a Greek word that kind of means it doesn't, it's not as intimate or affectionate as uh, a, a, a philos friend would be. The word symbolizes someone who is my compatriot, someone that walks alongside with me. But Jesus still called Judas friend. I don't think there, uh, there's, there's not a, a misquote in Jesus' words. He's not trying to be sarcastic. I think what's going on here is Jesus, you know, for perhaps the last time, by calling Judas friend, he's, he's holding out his hand. Say, Judas, I'm willing to extend mercy to you. Here's my hand one more time. You can, take, you can take my hand, but if you have to do what you have to do, then do it. And of course, Jesus does that. And here's the thing that I think is important for us to see. And this, again, this idea of, of betrayal. Notice how Jesus is responding to betrayal. And then perhaps compare that to how you might respond to betrayal. A friend does something just just wrong against you. They turn against you, a a spouse against a spouse, a a parent against their kid. Somebody at work wrongs you. There's nothing you can do about it. What do we do? We get angry. We dismiss that person. We turn our back on them, hopefully never to have to see them, be around them again. Or worse, we want to get even, right? We We want vindication. Know that Jesus doesn't do any of that. He allows the kiss to happen, and then he tells Judas, do what you came to do. Here's my take on this. If there's any doubt in the free offer of the gospel, 
You simply have to look at how Jesus behaved in his last hours leading up to his death, starting, starting right here. Because this is a hard moment for, your, for Jesus, because Judas was a true friend. Although G- Judas was destined to, to turn on Jesus, to betray him, and, and do this act because it would lead to Jesus going to the cross and dying in our place for our sin, Judas was a friend. This is the gospel in a nutshell. This is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That's what we're seeing on display through Jesus' actions here. Even to Judas, he's extending mercy with the hope of pulling him back from the act that he's about to commit and bringing him to himself. But then Jesus turns to his captors, and that's who he's talking to here. And he's telling them, all right, I know what you're doing, but know that what you're doing is you're doing it because the scriptures have foretold that you would do it. But there's hope even for you because the Son of God has come into the world to seek and save those who were lost. And so Jesus, even towards his captors, these Roman soldiers, the, 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 the religious leaders and the temple guards, he's telling them, he's planting seeds of grace even in their hearts that, that I mean, though they're betraying him and arresting him, there's still hope for them. But that's not what we see in, in verse 56. We're told at the very end of verse uh, 56, uh, right as Jesus is led away, perhaps in chains, that all the disciples flee. I mean, they leave him. I mean, c- talk about compounding sorrow. People that are your closest friend, people that you really want to be there with you when, when life gets tough, people that have been with you kind of, sort of, through, through it all. And then when it gets as worse as it's going to get, they absolutely leave you. They, 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 they run away in fear. That's what's going on in this moment. Sorrow upon sorrow is what Jesus is experiencing. Yet this is what the Bible says about this. 2 Timothy 2, 11, 11 through 13. This, this saying is trustworthy for if we've died with him, we also live with him. If we endure with him, will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Of course, these are the words of the, the Apostle Paul, but it speaks to what's going on here. And, and firstly, we have to recognize J- Judas is lost here. Judas would be one of those that we would say, he's denying Jesus. Jesus extended him mercy. Judas didn't turn. And so what happens to someone that denies Jesus? Jesus denies them. And so we know from church history, we know from the rest of the Gospels that from that from this moment here, Judas leaves. He deals with his his own guilt so much so that he takes the 30 coins of silver that he had gotten from the religious leaders to betray Jesus. He goes back to them, throws them on the ground, trying to absolve himself from this heinous crime that he's done to to turn Jesus in. And then what does Judas do? He, he goes out and he, uh, he ties a rope up on a branch that's overhanging a cliff. The branch breaks. Judas, trying to hang himself, actually falls to his death on the rocks and dies. That was Judas' fate. And perhaps probably the worst thing that we can um, think about Judas as he's still hearing these words that Jesus said in verse 50. 
over and over again through eternity. Judas, do what you got to do. Can you imagine hearing those words forever? That's likely what's going on with Judas. And it would be tempting for us to take the rest of the disciples who also flee. I mean, they just leave Jesus for, for fear of their own lives. And, and to say that they've denied Jesus as well. But I think what's happened here, because we know that these disciples, all of them go on, and they're the ones that started the early church. They're not, you know, they're not doing the same thing that, Jesus, that Judas is doing. They're not uh, denying Judas, although they are being faithless, but no, no less faith, faithless than we are sometimes when we know what Jesus has set for us to do and we choose not to do it. And so Jesus loves them anyway. He was faithful, though they were, like we are, faithless. And again, we have to recognize this is the plan of God. Because Jesus had to face the cross alone. We don't need any other mediators on the cross for us. Jesus goes to the cross as our only mediator. Our redemption is secured by the person and work of Jesus and him alone. And it's he alone that saves us. And so let me conclude with this. I don't don't know. Have you been abandoned? Have you been um, betrayed in life? Has someone close to you hung you out to dry? Have you had a spouse that's turned on you? And I mean, you're just contemplating. I mean, can, can we recover from this? Have you faced betrayal at some from someone's hands at work? Uh, and then I would ask you, how are you responding? How, how are you dealing with that? It would be easy for us to, to just slap a, a moral kind of lesson on this text. And, and there are moral implications. But before you do that, let me just warn you, uh, this firstly is not a, a, a moral lesson that we're supposed to learn from this text. This is the Son of God submitting to the plan of God, which leads to our, our very redemption. What this text is telling us is Jesus is being betrayed and arrested. He'll be tried four times and he'll go to the cross. It's telling us how a person is saved. How do we get saved? Jesus dies in our place for our sin and by the mercies of God, to, to, as, a, as a sign that God received him as a sacrifice, what happens? The Spirit of God raised him from the grave. This is, this is in line with what's happening here. And so the point of our narrative is to show us ever so briefly the extent to which God allowed Jesus to suffer, but the the what Jesus was willing to suffer on your behalf. He is the man of sorrows. But there is a moral lesson here. If you've been betrayed by someone close to you, and the truth is eventually all of us will be, the lesson is don't just get angry. Don't don't think that you have to gain vindication. Your, your, Your first move is to cry out to Jesus. Why? Because he's he's endured all of the the betrayal that you could ever endure in life and then some. And it's Jesus who loves you, who pursues you and intimately understands the reality of that betrayal. And he'll lead you through it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And in reality, you could have given us uh, 
You've already given us a lot of detail into this scene of Gethsemane and how Jesus was portrayed and how he was betrayed. In your mercy toward us, I think you have the gospel writers leave out some of the, the vivid nature of it for fear that, like the disciples, we would flee. But I pray, Lord, that you would give us a sense just through these words of the suffering of our Savior, the links that Jesus would go through to not just fulfill the word of God, but to be our Redeemer, to be our Savior. That from this moment, he would go in chains. That he would succumb almost uh, in quiet the the, 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 the wrong words of the religious leaders as they lied against him. He would endure the beatings of the Roman soldiers. And ultimately, he would go to the cross. And Jesus, who committed no crime, wasn't doing this for himself. He was doing it for us. So as we see the suffering that the Son of Man went through, Lord God, give us grateful hearts. Know that he gives us mercy even today. I pray especially for those here who have yet to receive the grace and the kindness of God. God, would you bring them to repentance today? Would you help them to see that Jesus and the pain that he endures, it was for them, for their salvation. And I pray this in your great name, Jesus. Amen and amen. Amen.